0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi,
2: everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service and a genocide studies scholar. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to John Roth about the failure of ethics confronting the Holocaust, genocide, and other mass atrocities, published in paperback by Oxford University Press in 2018. John, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Jeff. I'm really honored to be with you today.
2: I'm honored to have you. And uh, you are, I think, in some ways, a certified regular on the New Books Network, this being, by my count, your fifth appearance. For our listeners who might be less familiar with you and your work, can you tell our audience a bit about yourself and what led you to write The Failure of Ethics?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm presently uh, an emeritus professor of philosophy from uh, Claremont McKenna College California, where I taught for more than 40 years. Uh, I've been working on the Holocaust and uh, genocide related uh, issues for about 50 years, as it turns out. Uh, I live presently in rural Washington state uh, in a little town called Winthrop, which is a beautiful spot. And in my retirement, I have had a great place uh, to continue my research projects, and my writing. I look upon my retirement as an extended sabbatical, and I've continued to uh, focus on issues that have to do with uh, mass atrocity crimes, uh, genocide, and the Holocaust in particular. Uh, I've done a book more recently than The Failures of Ethics, actually, which I call uh, Sources of Holocaust Insight. It's a kind of retrospective that Uh, looks back on various people who have especially uh, influenced my thinking about uh, the Holocaust and genocide. And I imagine some of those names may uh, come up as we carry on our conversation today, Jeff.
2: Thanks, John. Great. So let's get into the book and and we'll see where this goes. Uh, Opening up your book, you write, quote, although these catastrophes do not pronounce the death of ethics, They show that ethics is vulnerable, subject to misuse and perversion, and that no simple reaffirmation of ethics, as if nothing disastrous has happened or had happened, will do. Can you talk about a few things here for our listeners? First, perhaps a question with an obvious answer, but what do ethics have to do with genocide and other mass atrocities?
1: Sure. Let me back up just a little bit. Uh, My idea for uh, writing about the failures of ethics, uh, which has to do actually with your question very directly. Uh, was uh, inspired by my reading of the poet uh, William Stafford. He's an American poet, no longer alive, unfortunately, but uh, I've profited over the years from uh, reading his poems. And in a poem that he wrote uh, late in his life, uh, he talked about how uh, there's a thread that you follow. And he was talking about a kind of theme or A set of ideas or questions that become kind of governing uh, realities in a in a in a person's life, and as I thought about what Stafford was getting at and applied it to my own uh, scholarly life, I realized that one of the threads that I'd been uh, following or that had been leading me had to do with failure, and in particular, I was Realizing that I had spent much of my life uh, studying about uh, ethical failures. That is the, the, the shortfalls and shortcomings that are part of, of human experience again and again and again, where we know that we fail to do what we ought to do. We fail to do what is right. We fail to do what is good. Uh, it doesn't mean that we always act that way. But uh, when it comes to uh, to ethical behavior, uh, failure has a pretty big part to play in it. And so I thought, well, maybe what I should do here is follow this thread. And uh, as I did that, what resulted was uh, the book that I called The Failures of Ethics. Now, to get back to your uh, question, uh, one of the things that I have uh, Seen when I think about genocide and the Holocaust and other mass atrocity crimes, is that uh, these disasters, catastrophes, have have been shattering in terms of uh, human hopes and assumptions. And what 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 has happened with these, especially as they accumulate, is that all the sources that we once thought were the kind of foundations for uh, for ethics, and I'll get to what I think ethics involves in more detail in a minute, these things have, have been called into question. It ranges all the way from conscience to reason, to uh, religious traditions, to, uh, to all the things that we would uh, normally assume create a kind of moral structure for or reality and for history the the fact that so much has happened that has been murderous and destructive and uh, wrong uh, has has the effect i think of eroding our confidence in the uh place that uh, that ethical uh thinking and feeling and reality uh, has in our existence. So uh, genocide is a uh, primary example of ethical failure uh, because genocide involves uh, the destruction of uh, human groups in the classical definition, uh, as as your listeners, many of them will know, uh, the, the The concept of genocide is about the destruction in whole or in part of national, ethnic, religious, or racial groups. And it's so destructive and it destroys uh, not just life, but it destroys culture and it can destroy uh, tradition and it can destroy norms that uh, uh, we thought would uh, help to sustain human flourishing. So uh, ethics has everything to do with uh, genocide, particularly when we're thinking about the failures of ethics, our our shortcomings in living up to the ethical standards that uh, we thought uh, and still should believe, I think, are, are normative for human civilization. I like to think of ethics as the keystone of civilization. And uh, what I mean by that is that uh, at its best, ethics emphasizes uh, careful deliberation about the difference between right and wrong. It also involves encouragement not to be indifferent toward that difference. Uh, Ethics also, which is, Ethics is a is a way of thinking, and it's it's also uh, a, a way of acting. But ethics involves cultivation of virtuous character, and action that is uh, willing to defend what is right and resist what is wrong. So, uh, to give one example here of uh, how ethics would relate to genocide, and how the failures of ethics are involved with genocide. One of the fundamental keystone elements of civilization is, is uh, embodied in the biblical injunction that you shall not murder, shall not murder. But in genocide, murder takes place uh, repeatedly and massively. And so uh, genocide represents, among other things, a massive failure of ethics, a failure of ethics to uh, prevent or to intervene against uh, mass murder. And, and
2: John, do you think you
1: mentioned cultivating,
2: um, you know, cultivating um, proper ethics or proper responses or um, ethical successes, I suppose. Do do ethical failures compound one another? Um, do, you know what I'm, do you know what I'm asking? Um, it, it, with each failure, do we, yeah, does it
1: actually sort of end up, I don't know, reproducing more failure? I think there's a tendency to go that way. Uh, there's a kind of slippery slope quality to uh, ethical failure. It can start with small things and then uh, bigger things happen. Uh, take lying, for example. Uh, it's sometimes been said that uh, if a person lies, then it takes more lies to cover up the lie, And uh, so I think that's one way to think of how, uh, how uh, a failure of an ethical kind can can get compounded. It can get uh, uh, amplified. Uh, In genocide, uh, we see this too, because uh, mass killing doesn't just start out of the blue it requires a a developmental path that uh, includes uh, what today we sometimes would call othering, uh, singling out a group of people uh, who are regarded as what? Inferior, as threatening, as uh, an obstacle to some kind of goals that other groups may have. And then uh, uh, propaganda, uh, comes into play amplified by everything from posters to radio to uh, now we have it on the internet that uh, that creates an impression of the other the group that has been identified as threatening and inferior or however it's understood and it and the uh, hostility toward the group gets, gets ramped up and amplified. And if the uh, mentality of some of the people who are ramping up the hostility has a uh, genocidal uh, intents in it, which uh, often has happened, then the, uh, the result is that the othering leads to the conviction and to the policy that that group should be eliminated. And the elimination can take place in a variety of ways. It doesn't always have to involve uh, mass killing, but uh, very often uh, that's, that's what happens. So uh, where, where genocide happens, I think it's always the case that you have a, uh, an escalation, an amplification of ethical failure uh, that, uh, that takes place and that uh, eventuates in, uh, usually, it eventuates in mass killing. But this can, this can also be a manipulation of ethics,
2: right? You know, you write about the abuse and manipulation. Um, when people are other dehumanized, treated, um, you know, ill treatment, uh, even, even murdered and murdered massively in the form of genocide. Is it, do genocide perpetrators and planners sometimes frame this as the ethical thing to do?
1: Yes. I think this is, uh, one of the most, uh, challenging and, uh, interesting things about, uh, what I call the failures of ethics. And, uh, It can go like this. There actually are are multiple dimensions to it, but I'll I'll track out one of them first. Uh, Where genocide takes place, it's usually the case that the people who are committing the genocide are doing this because they at least argue that it's something that, that must take place. It's something that even... Uh, is good, though it may be very difficult and unpleasant to do it because the group that is uh, being targeted is regarded as threatening, as uh, inferior, as uh, standing in the way of objectives that uh, ought to be pursued. So uh, people who uh, commit genocide uh, at least... uh, put the idea out there in such a way that it looks like they are recommending a policy that is the means to a, a better end, or that is, its, is itself something that is worth doing, is even good, uh, you can see this uh, most clearly, I think, in the, in the Holocaust where the Nazi uh, ideology that was uh, racially anti-Semitic and, and targeted the Jews. Uh, uh, looked on the Jews as uh, almost as a as an infectious virus that had to be eliminated, uh, and it, and it therefore was uh, a moral duty and obligation. Uh, it was a good thing to get rid of uh, the Jewish presence in Nazi Germany. And they developed a whole kind of ethical way of thinking about this. Uh, uh, Some scholars have identified what they call the Nazi ethic or even the Nazi conscience, which sounds like uh, a contradiction on the face of it. But in fact, there was uh, a way in which the Nazis cultivated uh, an ethic and a kind of view about uh, conscience that. was genocidal, and uh, it used the ethical categories about, you know, justice and about goodness and about right and wrong. Uh, I like to uh, cite a, a, a passage from uh, the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer that captures this uh, pretty well. Bonhoeffer, of course, was a, a German Christian uh, theologian who was uh steadfastly in opposition and resistance to to Nazism um, and lost his life as a result. But at one point, uh, Bonhoeffer speaks about what he calls uh, the huge masquerade of evil. It's a nice concept, the masquerade of evil that throws, as he puts it, all ethical concepts into confusion by making evil appear in the form of light good deeds, historical necessity, social justice. I think very often where genocides take place, uh, the the, uh, perpetrators of the genocide uh, use moral concepts to help uh, incite and justify and uh, warrant uh, the actions that they are taking, uh Bonhoeffer saw this about Nazi Germany with regard to its policies, uh, specifically with regard to uh the Jewish people and uh, it was a masquerade of evil because evil was masquerading in the uh, in, in the in the ethical vocabulary and in the ethical concepts for it perverted the ethical in that way. So that's a, a always a, a a factor that has to be watched when we're thinking about the failures of ethics.
2: And John, does that connect in some way to um, how you describe genocide as "quote No crime is more human or inhuman than genocide."
1: Yes, uh, I, I write this line in the book uh, that no crime is more human or inhuman than genocide. Uh, uh, Animals uh, that are not human uh, don't commit genocide. Uh, human beings, it takes human beings to create genocide, to, uh, to have the mentality and the intentionality that uh, targets a group as being so uh, threatening or undesirable that uh, we, the in-group, uh, would be better off without them. Uh, so it's a it's genocide is a is a human uh, en- enterprise and it isn't always uh by any means carried out by uh by monsters. We ought to avoid that it's carried out by uh by human beings who are not all that different from uh you and me jeff uh, but who uh, are uh hell bent on uh, destruction of of uh, human beings of other groups, but it's for that reason then also inhuman. It's uh, it's contrary to what we think of when we are uh, thinking at our best about what's valuable, about what's good, about what's right, about what's just, um, and, and and genocide highlights this because as I've been emphasizing genocide targets groups of people. And if you're in the target group, it doesn't matter you know uh, who you are as an individual. You could be uh, a brilliant artist, you could be uh, uh, a, a child, you could be uh, uh, a woman who is pregnant, and it doesn't matter if you're in the group that's targeted then from the point of view of the perpetrators, uh, you have to go. You have to be taken out of the uh, culture and the political reality uh, that the uh, genocide perpetrators uh, believe should exist.
2: Yeah. Thank you, John. Um, So can you tell our listeners a bit about the three-term taxonomy? Um, We've talked a bit about, perpetrators and victims, um, but you also talk about bystanders quite a bit in your text. So can you tell us a little bit about this three-term taxonomy, um, as well as, you know, what you mean when you say they are not separable, static, or purely descriptive?
1: This, uh, what I call three-term taxonomy of perpetrator, victim, and bystander uh, has been, uh, well, by now it's become kind of a conventional uh, set of I ideas for identifying uh, persons who are in genocidal situations. But it's, it's always been recognized, I think, and now it's uh, been underscored more as, as we've uh, learned more and studied more, that this uh, three-part uh, categorization uh, has, has weaknesses. Uh, one of them is it, it looks at first glance as though these are uh discrete and uh even separable uh, kinds of categories uh like three baskets you could you know put people in these three baskets and there they they would sit but uh we know that uh, it's not that simple uh, first of all, these concepts are not separable from one another. That is, perpetrators always have victims, and victims are—they uh, aren't in play unless there's there's somebody who's victimizing. And in in genocide and mass atrocity crimes, it's always the case that there are uh, people, we sometimes refer to them as bystanders or onlookers, uh, who are Neither the victims directly, nor are they the killers explicitly, but they are kind of in the mix. And as it turns out, uh, they are actually crucial because if they uh, stand by and don't get involved and don't uh, uh, take the actions that they could take to prevent or stop something from happening, uh, then uh, the perpetrators have kind of a free hand. And they can go about their business uh uh more or less with impunity. So uh, these are, are are uh insofar as these are, are helpful concepts, they, they are all at play uh in the in the mix where we have genocide and other uh mass atrocity crimes. But um they aren't static categories. Uh, a bystander, for example, can become a perpetrator and likewise a bystander might become a victim and uh it's fluid and flexible even perpetrators might be they might have a change of heart though, though few of them do and they might they might end up doing something else victims uh this this uh is a concept that often seems to uh remove agency from uh from the people who are targeted by uh, by by genocide, but we know in 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 all cases the the victims aren't passive; they are doing uh, whatever they can within their power to uh, to resist and to elude and to uh, escape from uh, the perpetrators who are are trying to destroy them. So these are 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 not static categories; they're they're fluid and flexible and. Uh, what happens uh, with regard to uh, people who might be placed in these categories can change over time. And then the last thing that it occurs to me is important to uh, note here is that these categories of uh, perpetrator, victim, and bystander are, as I I say, they're not merely descriptive. They, They are already laid with, uh, with ethical content, if you think about it. I mean, being a victim is not a desirable place to be. It's not good to be a victim. It's not good to be a bystander. And it's certainly not good to be a, a mass murderer, a perpetrator of uh, genocide. So these categories have uh, uh, ethical content kind of uh, built into them uh, and and that leads us to realize that uh, this, this uh, taxonomy, in every instance, contains uh, the, the a moral imperative that sort of says you shall not be a perpetrator, you shall not be a victim, and you shall not be a bystander. Uh, so uh, that's something that interests me about the the, the very classifications uh, and. Uh, categorization scheme that we often use in in talking about the uh, the persons the players in uh, genocidal situations uh, bystander just to add another word uh, about that category is uh, probably the least satisfactory among the three as far as uh, giving us a, a good analytical tool uh, because uh, there's so many different kinds of Bystanding—that uh, there can be some. Some bystanders are actually enablers. Uh, they are—they are not maybe uh, you know, doing the killing, but they may be essential to uh, making it happen. Uh, some people have argued that when you press it hard enough, uh, the bystander category sort of evaporates. That you—that in most cases you. You move toward uh, people who are enabling something or who are accomplices or uh, helping in some way to make it possible for these uh, murderous actions to take place. In a few instances, you have bystanders who uh, move in the direction more of being uh, resistors, uh, rescuers, uh, and people of that sort so the bystander category is uh one that uh we have to think about pretty deeply and be uh, careful about how we are applying it
2: and does the you you talked about the ethical content Does the ethical content and then therefore the ethical response differ depending on the kind of power influence or leverage different bystanders have so Uh, say, a bystander in Germany to the Holocaust versus a bystander in the United States. And then there's, of course, we could get into even more complicated states can also be bystanders since they have the ability, the power, the tools to do something where citizens don't. Um, So can you expand a little bit more on that, um, the content and then the ethical response, depending on one's position?
1: Sure. I think this is uh, very important. Uh, when we're uh, trying to assess uh, what I call the failures of ethics, uh, it makes a huge difference uh, where someone is located uh, as as to what kind of leverage or what kind of uh, influence they can bring to bear on uh, a a situation that is uh, genocidal. Uh, And certainly uh, nations and uh, groups Political groups, religious groups, uh, all kinds of, of uh, organizations uh, are in this uh, place where we can ask about how how are they responding? What kind of leverage do they have uh, in the Holocaust, for example? There's there's been you know there continues to be lots of discussion about uh, where were the Christian churches with regard to Uh, what was happening to uh, the Jews under the swastika. Uh, And we're we're still wrestling with this as the Vatican archives open up uh, in Rome, if people can get to them in the COVID times to uh, assess the the problematic reign of uh, Pope Pius XII, who was uh, a person with uh, considerable influence, at least uh, during the Second World War. So uh there, there are uh lots of uh considerations and uh subtleties that uh enter in when we try to assess the behavior of people uh as far as intervention or prevention with regard uh to genocide may be concerned. But uh it has to be added that it's uh it's very easy for uh people, individuals, groups, states, uh, to rationalize behavior that uh, excuses them from responsibility, when they actually do have responsibility uh, when they when they are accountable to some extent for uh, what is taking place. So I like to put it this way that uh, uh, no individual certainly can Uh, stop or prevent genocide, Uh, but every individual who is uh, uh, located in circumstances akin to mine or to yours, Jeff, uh, can do something, do something to uh, intervene. And when we get to nation states or to groups like religious groups, uh, the same thing applies may not be the case that uh, genocide is something easy to prevent or to stop. But uh, we know as we look over the historical record that uh, more more could always have been done than was actually the case. And uh, this is what kind of reinforces for me again, the notion that there is uh, ethical failure that uh, takes place um, where genocide happens.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: I mean, I'm I'm curious, and I'm sure my students uh, in in my classes would be curious. uh, Why does it seem so hard to do the ethical thing then? Um, Shouldn't (laughs) engaging in resistance to genocide be an easy ethical decision? What kind of things interfere with that?
1: Right. Uh, Well, I think... Uh, most people, with the exception of the people who are committing a genocide, uh, uh, once they know something about what's going on, I think it is a fairly easy call to say uh, what's happening is wrong. Uh, I, I, I like to put it this way. If genocide isn't wrong, then nothing could be. Now, we, we can get to the point of uh, discussing, and we, and we should do this, about, well, how do we know for sure that a genocide is happening? But uh, let's assume for the minute, for the moment that we're pretty convinced that genocide is taking place. Uh, it's not a very hard call to say that it's wrong, which is interesting because this sort of reinforces the the uh, basic uh, factor in in ethics, which is that there is a difference between right and wrong, between justice and injustice, between what's good and what isn't. So but but. Uh, even when we say, no, something is happening and that's genocide and therefore it's wrong, uh, all sorts of things can uh, uh, intrude that uh, forestall uh, ethical action that would resist or protest against or or prevent or intervene in, in a situation. And here we know, uh, the problem is uh, it's bigger than, uh, than with regard to genocide. It's a fundamental human problem. Uh, human beings uh, over and over again uh, are tempted by uh, greed, by power, by uh, advancing their own interests or the interests of their family. Uh, trying to uh, enrich themselves, and these uh, human propensities, uh, and here I'll use a word that will have a particular resonance right now, these kinds of uh, uh, factors in human life trump the ethical. The the, the ethical, the the, the understanding of what is right and wrong and, and just and unjust and good and evil, it has what I think of as a fragile quality about it. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that it's utterly weak because uh, people can become convinced that something is is right or something is wrong and they can really act on it and they can make big big changes with regard to it. But it's also the case that a lot of other human uh, interests can overwhelm or... Uh, uh, just, just be uh, uh, heavier than the uh, strength of the ethical conveyor. bear. And this is, as as your question points out, this is for me as a philosopher, uh, one of the one of the most fascinating and and uh, challenging problems. And that is why isn't the ethical impulse, the ethical conviction, stronger? Why is it so fragile? Why is it so easily overwhelmed uh, and trumped by our uh, uh, less than noble uh, characteristics? I think this is is one of the problems, uh, if I can go here for just a minute, that uh, we're facing here in the United States as election day uh, comes up. Uh, We have had a paucity of, uh you know moral uh, inspiration and uh, and leadership in our in our politics and that may change uh, as we head into November and the weeks beyond but uh, we've been living in a, a case study of uh, how the ethical can be trumped by baser, Motives and inclinations uh, that are part of our, our human existence.
2: And I, I mean, I, I was thinking of a couple of things. <laughs> One was just about you know how state interests also are different than human interests, even though there are humans who are contributing to what we understand to be state interests. But you, you know, bringing up the upcoming election, um, do you think? That the the way the US has responded to genocide and other atrocities has been a, a partisan thing? Um, or has there been a general
1: failure? Yeah. Well, you're the expert on this, Jeff, <laughs> with the work that you've done. So uh i you could correct me when I, <laughs> when I go ahead and say what I think here if I if I get it too far wrong. I think that uh, uh nation states are are uh motivated primarily by what we call national interest. Uh, This isn't um, uh, to their credit, ethically or morally, uh, even though it may be uh, essential for their uh, survival and their independence and their their ongoing existence. But uh, national interest at least uh, seems, very often to create the impression that uh, where genocide is taking place, uh, it, it isn't in a country's national interest to get involved, to uh, pursue that, or at least it's it's not clear that some aspect of uh, a nation's interest would be enhanced and benefited by uh, intervening. Now, there's uh, there, there's some pushback that would say well wait a second it's it's more complicated than that uh, if we live in a world where uh, we look so much on our own national interest that uh, we just stand by while all sorts of human rights abuses are taking place and uh, mass murder is occurring and genocide is happening then uh, that maybe isn't in our national interest uh, because it it, it Allows, it's, it's allowing those kinds of destructive powers to have their way. That could be one part. And another part of it might be, and I think this comes home to roost with the United States, that uh, allowing these kinds of uh, actions to take place, these violations of, of human rights and human dignity, uh, is so contrary to the uh, values that we profess to have as, uh, as a country. It's a culture that we had better be involved or else we're just hypocrites of the worst sort Is we pound our chests about how important you know, human rights are in the United States. But if we don't act uh, to defend human rights in other parts of the world, then even if we're defending that point of view from some kind of account of national interest, we still, you know, I think are in a situation where we can say some ethical failure has taken place. Because national interest uh, simply cannot be equated with what is right and good and just. It all depends on what the national interest is is leading people to do and leading the country to uh, defend and to serve. Uh, that's how you judge whether the national interest is ethical or moral, not just because it exists. Right. And what is good or what is in the
2: national interest doesn't always have to be material, right? It could be, um, moral good as well. Um, and doing what's right yes. in different situations. Um, now you, 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 mentioned, um, you know, hypocrisy of the worst kind or the, the potential for that, uh, that leads to in some ways to another question I had for you, which is, um, you know, whether individualistic societies actually produce individually minded individuals, um, you know, does individualism work counter to a, a quote-unquote Good Samaritan ethic? Uh,
1: I think this is an important question because it's uh, it ends up being a complicated question. Uh, I think a kind of individualism can lead to uh, a selfishness that uh, looks out only for oneself and one's own interests. This could be true of a of uh, an individualistic uh understanding of of the nation state i think as well um uh, you know the 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 current uh administration's emphasis on america first uh bears watching in this regard because uh if that means america to the exclusion of you know other other nation states and what uh the cooperation between those uh, states ought to be, then, then that's that's a difficulty. So, uh, individualistic societies uh, may produce individuals and may become societies that are uh, self-centered in a way that is uh, dangerous and uh, can even be destructive. But it's also true on the other side that. Uh, Uh, The ethical imperatives that we, you know, uh, regard as most fundamental for civilization uh, always have uh, a point of contact with individuals or they don't have much power. So for example, if we go back to the the fundamental injunction against murder, uh, that applies to me as a person. I'm not. I'm not a person who should murder. Uh, it's wrong if I do that, uh, and by extension, then it becomes the case that uh, my society, my the groups I belong to, the uh, the, the nation state that I'm a citizen of, uh, also is uh, held to account by this standard uh, if it become if it, if they become murderous. So uh, the place of, of the individual or the concept of individualism in this, in this mix is, uh, is a complex one. Uh, it can lead to indifference, to inaction, to selfishness, but it also is a case that unless the individual feels the, uh, the bite of a moral injunction or moral imperative, those uh, norms and uh, the traditions that support them are are going to be weakened.
2: Right. And, you know, I, I, just, I wanted to take a step back um, because I didn't want to just gloss over, you know, what you had said about, um, you know, my own work on the United States and its relationship with genocide. Um, so sorry to make this an abrupt uh, transition here, but, you know, I wanted to just raise this with you. You know, the cases that I looked at, you know, and I found that the United States played some role, whether it's failing to prevent based on the Bosnia versus Serbia ICJ standard um, or something more, uh, oftentimes the cases did involve a, uh, a Republican administration. And I, I wonder, you know, since we've got into a little bit about the upcoming election, um, do you think there's a different ethic or different ethical approach to, I don't, you know, how we respond to or our relationships with governments that have committed genocide, depending on one admission, uh, uh, sorry, uh, administration or another.
1: Um, <laughs> I think there can be. Uh, I'd have to go back and uh, review some of the history that, that you've explored uh, so much to feel very confident about this. Sorry but for but on this <laughs> if, you, if you take the uh, if you take the current predicament that we are in here, uh, I am guessing that. Uh, uh, an Obama administration, a Biden administration, might be more inclined to uh, uh, participate in uh, genocide prevention than uh, Donald Trump's administration uh, has been uh, or would be. Uh, so you know, in that, in the immediate term, yeah, there might be some difference uh, between. Uh, the political uh, perspectives that, that, that the parties have. I think uh, we've all uh, followed with some dismay, I think, uh, some of the uh, polling that's been done that suggests that the United States' uh, uh, esteem in the world presently is uh, lower than, than it once was and maybe dangerously low. Uh, and that has something to do with... Uh, the decline of uh, attention to uh, alliances and to uh, international cooperation and to uh, uh, working together with with, uh, other uh, uh, nation states to advance uh, common interests and common ground. Um, But I I think in general, uh, the United States Uh, gets a, I don't know, not much better than a a B- when it comes to uh, genocide uh, intervention and prevention. There have been cases where um, there's been great reluctance to uh, even acknowledge that genocide is taking place. Uh, And the reasons for that have to do at least in part with the notion that if a signatory to the a United Nations Genocide uh, uh, Convention acknowledges that a genocide is taking place. Then there's some obligation to do something about that. Uh, so uh, the reluctance sometimes to use what uh, euphemistically has been called the "G" word, use the genocide word to uh, identify an action that's underway. Uh, you know, the United States has not been. Uh, immune to that uh, temptation, and it goes back to, to one other point, which uh, is uh, a general uh, concern where we're talking about genocide, and that has to do with how do we know when a genocide is actually happening or taking place? The uh, concept of genocide itself has been argued about; uh, it's been interpreted uh, in various ways, and. Uh, so that's that's an issue. Uh, but it's also true that one of the problems that uh, haunts um, the crime of genocide uh, is that for it to be identified uh, as, as a crime, there has to be some uh, reliable conviction that an intention is at work to destroy a group in whole or in part. Uh, and in any kind of uh, legal situation where uh, the burden of proof rests uh, to some extent on, on intention, on identifying an intent, uh, that's that's difficult and complicated. Yeah, it creates a,
2: a high bar um, you know, with the genocide convention explicitly talking about the um, contracting parties have responsibility to prevent and punish. If you have to first establish that the intent is there even when it's challenging to establish intent, even after the fact, when you have time to you know, try and find documents and review all of the evidence, um, it, it makes it very difficult to invoke the Genocide Convention before irreparable harm has been done because you know, the irreparable harm that many people have been killed is evidence uh, or potential evidence of genocide. Um, yes. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. The, the uh, evidence of the intent is actually the uh, the murder that's taking place, but uh, as you point out, that's already far later than uh, a, a robust moral response to uh, genocide would would encourage. We we don't want to have to have you know uh, eight hundred thousand dead uh, Tutsis before we uh, state that a genocide took place in Rwanda. Uh, so that that's a difficulty and i i don't know the way around it uh uh i am interested uh in uh a doctrine that is uh under discussion and it hasn't been getting all the attention it deserves but i think uh it's it's an idea that uh is is worth keeping uh in focus and that's the idea of the responsibility to protect which uh has garnered some Uh, international support, uh, at least, you know, earlier in this uh, century, things are all tossed up in the air now because of COVID and uh, the pandemic uh, times that we're in and all the rest of it. But the the idea that nations uh, have a responsibility uh, to protect uh, uh, societies that either Uh, cannot protect their citizens or are are unwilling to protect their citizens uh, as uh, content in it that uh, I think we would forget or overlook at our peril. Right. And
2: I don't don't want to get too far down a a new uh, rabbit hole, but um, do you have any thoughts on the intervention in Libya and how that may have stunted um, R2P's normative progress?
1: Yeah, the problem with the responsibility to protect uh, uh, is uh, if its strength is that uh, it advocates intervention, then the question always becomes okay, if intervention takes place, then it, is that fitting? but the uh, uh, the ideal of the responsibility to protect uh, is defending, or have we simply got another case of a nation interfering in the uh, in the life of another uh, in a way that uh, is problematic and that's that's a tension that the uh, ideal of the responsibility to protect uh, has to keep wrestling with, I think.
2: I agree, especially when, um, I mean, it's unfortunate that, you know, the intervention in Libya um, has either been, you know, used rightly or wrongly, I'd say wrongly, um, but to um, impact the response to what's happening in Syria, or what has yes. been happening in Syria. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're almost out of time. Um so I wanted to end with you know, something that you will talk about in the conclusion of your book. And, and in it, you write, quote, it matters whether the right side of history exists, but arguably something else matters more, at least for us who live and die in the fleeting moments and short-lived places of the time that is ours. What we choose to do matters more. How we confront the failure of failures of ethics, protesting and risk resisting them so that human life can flourish matters more. The best salvage crews do not rely on the right side of history. They are not motivated, at least not primarily, by belief in it. Nor are they disheartened or deterred by doubt that the right side of history exists. Awareness that disaster is a fact, that catastrophe has happened, is enough to keep them on the move. Never letting go of that thread can bring joy that makes all the difference in the world. In closing, from that we are able to. Um, in closing, from that, are we able to end on an optimistic note? Have, have we made progress in preventing, responding, and resisting genocide? Uh, has the failures of ethics had its reckoning?
1: Uh, <clears throat> I end the book, uh, as you point out, with a reflection uh, on a concept that we're hearing quite a lot about uh, recently in our, in our politics, uh, and that's the idea of the right side of history. Uh, the notion that there is a, a moral structure to things uh, to history in particular, and that some actions and uh, policies are on the right side and others are on the wrong side, and that somehow uh, things are moving uh, in a direction that favors the right side. I think the classic text in uh, American life that uh, reflects this is you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, statement that uh, the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends toward justice. That would be uh, one of the articulations of uh, belief in the right side of history. My position on this is that, uh, as some others have pointed out, uh, the the concept of the right side of history has been uh, used and perhaps we could say abused in all sorts of ways. Uh, I think Hitler would have said that uh, his policies were on the right side of history. Uh, We would say, well, in terms of Dr. King's idea, well, the the arc is long. And what we learned is that uh, Hitler's thinking is on the wrong side of history. So it's it's important, as I say, uh, whether the right side of history exists or not. But uh, it seems to me that... uh, uh, most of the time, when uh, we're thinking about what leads people to uh, take an action to defend what is right and what is just, and to oppose what is unjust and uh, what is wrong, um, I think I think it's the it's the realities of of those uh, things as we experience them on the ground in the in the times and places where we live. That is uh, the, that is the motivation or the the failure of a motivation to act. And the idea of the right side of history may be, you know, in the background somewhere, uh, but I don't think it's the primary driver that uh, leads to uh, uh, to the the moral action that would be required, for example, if we were to successfully prevent or intervene against uh, a genocide. I think it's the reality on the ground, the, the scene of the suffering, seeing of the, uh, the murder, uh, uh, witnessing the, the dead, the accumulation of the dead, that, uh, that leads us uh, to say, uh, enough is enough. We've got to do something. We have to act. Or if we're enablers and complicit with with the activity, it's it's the things that are happening on the ground that lead us also to, you know, act that way. Uh, So uh, that's why I I end uh, the book, as you say, that uh, awareness that disaster is a fact, that catastrophe has happened, is enough uh, to keep uh, people on the move if they are going to be uh, acting in a way that uh, resists moral failure. And then I I just want to underscore one other thing, uh, because you asked me in the the preparation for our time together, whether there was a way to end this conversation on a bit of an optimistic note. And uh, I think there is, because the last line in my book is that uh, awareness that disaster is a fact, that catastrophe has happened, is enough to keep uh, people on the move. Never letting go of that thread can bring joy that makes all the difference in the world. Um, I I believe that there's such a thing as what I call an in spite of joy. Uh, It's a joy in spite of the atrocity, in spite of the mass killing, in spite of the of the mass murder that says, uh, uh, I and, and, and the, the groups that I'm part of uh, will resist, we will protest, we will do what we can to, uh, to prevent and uh, uh, to uh, forestall mass atrocities and to try to heal and save lives. And in that action, strange as it may sound, I think uh, joy can be found. It's not a sentimental kind of joy or a feel-good kind of joy that's related to pleasure. It's it's a joy that is related deeply to uh, meaning, to uh, doing something that is uh, deeply and profoundly meaningful. And I I link it in some ways to Uh, A favorite statement of mine that comes from W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, the great uh, black uh, interpreter of uh, racism uh, early in the uh, 20th century. Uh, Du Bois says at one point that uh, he clings to a hope, not hopeless, but unhopeful. So I think that's... uh, an attitude that, that has uh, has merit. It's especially meaningful coming from the context and circumstances that uh, Du Bois and uh, um, his, his people experienced uh, in America and are still experiencing. But there's something here that, uh, that I like because uh, he recognizes that there still is hope. It isn't hopeless, but it isn't optimistic, necessarily. It isn't, uh, it isn't um, assuming too much about what, uh, what, what will happen that favors what is right and good. But I think uh, in the striving for that, in the striving um, to resist and protest and to intervene and to prevent uh, mass atrocity crimes, there can be kind of uh, joy that is deeply meaningful and a hope that is not hopeless even if it is to some extent unhopeful. Thank you John and I'll
2: just say um, before we wrap up here is uh, I actually sent my students a a note today um, because I've been teaching uh, a graduate human rights course and you know, I, I don't want to contribute to hopelessness, um, but I think it's also important that, you know, that the students recognize that there are impediments to affecting change. Um, and then you have to develop strategies and approaches and, you know, and hope to make that change despite those, um, those roadblocks. Yes. Wars.
1: Right. And, and there you have the, in spite of, uh, That's right. coming in and what you said. And, and that wasn't even and planned. I, I do think as, as people work together, as they find solidarity with one another, uh, especially in trying to alleviate suffering and save lives and uh, help to heal those who are victimized, uh, that, that there's uh, meaning to be found in doing that that, it, that includes uh, the sense of joy that I have in
2: mind. Well, thank you, John. Um, your sense of joy is, is somewhat contagious. I, I'm, I'm smiling. I, 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 it's been an honor uh, to to speak with you, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, before I do let yes, you- Yes, I've, I've Sorry, enjoyed, I enjoyed it phone too, phone you, Jeff. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, is there is there anything you want to plug for our listeners, anything you're currently working on?
1: Uh, the latest book that I've done uh, might be of, of some interest to your listeners, it's a volume uh, that Carol Rittner and I have compiled that is called Advancing Holocaust Studies. And uh, it has implications for genocide studies, too. But uh, uh, the, the dilemma that we are, are wrestling with in that book, and we have a variety of uh, contributors to it, is to think about what it means to be engaged in uh, study of the holocaust or we could say study of other genocides too uh, particularly in uh, the times that we're living in in 2020 when we have a you know a, a pandemic uh, going on when we're living in a society where uh, racism has had an upsurge anti-semitism has not been blunted uh, democracies around the world are uh, imperiled, and uh, so we were kind kind of trying to get people to reflect on this in a personal and professional way about what uh, Holocaust studies we could extrapolate say what genocide studies are for. What are they for in uh, times like uh, the ones that that we're living in? And you know, as we speak, uh, there are uh, genocidal. Uh, initiatives that are are taking place in our world right now. One thinks about the Rohingya people, uh, and there's concern about uh, the Armenians again, uh, as they are uh, caught in uh, situations in their region of the world. So um, trying to think about what it is that we're uh, doing, what we're assuming, what we're Defending that that's the project in uh, the book called Advancing Holocaust Studies. Great. Well, thank
2: you for sharing, John. Um, This all sounds um, so important. Um, And uh, thanks again. If uh, if there's an opportunity to do this again, uh, I would love to do it. Absolutely. Me, too. (laughs) All right. Well, take care, John. Take care, Jeff.
1: plus